And that habit alone, which I call feeding my mind, body, and soul, has quite frankly saved my life. Yo, 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 yo. Welcome to Brown People We Know, an interview show where we explore the non-traditional paths and shared experiences of the South Asian American diaspora. My guest this week is Prince Bajwani. Prince is an entrepreneur and investor. While working at a consulting firm, he accidentally started Bubcart, an e-commerce platform. I'll let him tell that story, but the company was wildly successful and he sold it in 2019. Today, Prince is the chief investment officer of Gray Wall Investing. We talk about his investment thesis and building business relationships, but we also talk about his near-death experience with burnout. Prince dropped some serious wisdom at the end of the episode that I hope you all take to heart. Prince's family is of Pakistani Hindu descent, so they are rare, like a Bhangra song that doesn't bop or a shiny Pokemon. He shared the event that caused his family to leave Pakistan and seek refuge in America, and how that experience led to him co-founding a South Asian civil rights organization called Asana Voices. It was interesting to hear him talk about his experience after 9-11, given the Pakistani Hindu background, and what he believes is the most effective way to bring change, given his work with Asana Voices. Hope you're ready for some serious wisdom. Prince Bajwani, welcome to Brown People We Know. So Prince, you just had a birthday? Was that 3-0? Was that 30? No, no. Thankfully not, even though a lot of friends did wish me the best for the coming decade. I just turned 29. You've got another year before you hit the 30 mark. I don't know. Does that feel momentous to you? You know what? Every day, every minute, every second feels momentous to me, especially given the last year. I think for all of us, you know, 30, there's a lot of things I want to do and I, that I thought I would have wanted to do by 30. And that list keeps changing, but uh, it doesn't seem like a milestone that I'm looking forward to. So I want to start with your family, Prince. Your family's from Karachi, Pakistan. What's the history there and what brought them to the U.S.? First off, my family is Hindu Pakistani. And I'm sure a lot of your audience knows that that's not a very typical story for those who are Pakistani. Fortunately, my parents, they were pregnant with me in Pakistan in 1991. And their plan was to actually raise me and future children in Karachi, Pakistan. One morning, tension started heating up, political tensions. My uncle, on his way back home from school, was stabbed. Luckily, he's still alive, but that was the last red flag that my parents could handle as a pregnant couple. And literally that night, they had packed their bags. They'd left pretty much whatever they have at home, took a one-way ticket, and landed here in L.A. And really came here as refugees and ended up filing for political asylum. Wow. I want to dive deeper into that when we get to Asana Voices. But one of the things I'm curious about is Pakistani Hindus are less than 3% of the population there, right? So it's a very unique group. You were born in, in LA, but how conscious were you of being a part of that group while you grew up here? Because for me, a lot of the Indian festivals I went to were based around Hinduism or vice versa. So I would split my relationship with my Pakistani heritage and identity in three very distinct chapters. The first would be obliviousness. The second would be hatred. And the third would be embracing it. Obliviousness, because I was born in South Central LA. I didn't grow up with other Pakistanis or Indians or anyone else around me. Had a lot of black friends, a lot of Hispanic friends, a lot of Asian friends. And really, so my upbringing was extremely colorful. You know, even though my first language wasn't English, it was Urdu, I was still able to make friends with people who had similar backgrounds. And really, I was a child of a 20-year-old and 21-year-old mom and dad who were just trying to figure out their new life in America. They were busy, you know, picking up the American culture here as well. So we were all learning and we were all really oblivious. My parents oblivious about the American culture and me being oblivious of where they had come from. The second part, hatred, that started on September 11th, 2001. It seemed as if nobody in America knew what a Muslim was for years before September 11th. 
But the second the towers crashed, everyone had a very strong opinion of what a Muslim was because it was just plastered all over the media. And again, I'm not Muslim, but because of my Pakistani heritage, they had assumed that if you're from Pakistan, you must be Muslim. And after 9-11, if you're a Pakistani, you must be a terrorist. And so literally that day, I was in the fifth grade, literally that day, I came home hearing my first death threat from my classmates. These are kids who had never even known what a terrorist was or had never known or seen a Muslim, but now are willing to go above and beyond in terms of threatening their own classmates. I hated being Pakistani. I would come home crying and I asked my mom, you know, how can I separate myself from this identity? How can I live in this country that is so, supposed to embrace us by also hiding the biggest part of me, which is a Pakistani American? And she told me, you should just tell people that you're Indian instead. You know, they don't associate Indians with Muslims. They don't associate Indians with terrorism. They just associate Indians with very well-to-do citizens here. You should tell people that you're Indian. And I would do that. And I had given up for a great deal of my life the fact that I was Pakistani. And fast forward to about age 22 or 23, after joining this Indian organization actually based in North America, I quickly realized that I really don't have that much in common with these people. I don't really have that much in common with this organization that I'm a part of. Yes, it's great to have friends that look like me, but they don't speak like me. We've grown up eating very different foods, wearing different things, different traditions. We just happen to be from a similar place in South Asia. And that forced me to search deeper and ask my parents questions, ask my grandparents questions, want to go back to Pakistan. And at that moment, I started embracing my Pakistani heritage. And to the point where I've got it tattooed on my body, you know, in multiple places, I've set up various business interests and philanthropic efforts there. I want to make sure that whatever I do going forward, that no other child who comes from Pakistani heritage ever feels embarrassed or is ever oblivious the way I was of my Pakistani heritage. That's super powerful. So many people that I've spoken to have talked about being South Asian and feeling like they need to hide their lunch at school because it's different. It's unfamiliar to people. But this is much larger than that. I'm curious about Nita. So your younger sister, there's a bit of an age gap there, but you both seem pretty close. Did you both have similar experiences growing up or was it pretty different? So there's a six year age gap. I'm six years older than Nita. And the first six years, you know, this is a typical story of immigrant families moving to America or moving really anywhere outside of their comfort zone. It's usually a, a rougher ride. So in that sense, things that I've seen, maybe Nita may or may not have, but that's about it. In terms of how our parents treated us, I thought it was unique because what I've seen is males getting the better end of the deal from their parents in multiple ways. More freedoms, simply more confidence in the ability to do things. And I'm very thankful that my parents treated us the same. They instilled this unbelievable level of confidence in her to say, don't ever need anyone else. Don't ever require anyone else to hold your hand and take you somewhere. Do it yourself. And by doing that, you're going to be a champion not only for yourself and your family, but other future Nitas. And I'm very, you know, just, just seeing her evolve into, into who she is now, um, I really hope that other South Asian women do take her as a template. But it is difficult. I would say the reason she was able to do that is because our family has intrinsically created this system where it's not who's older that matters, it's who has the right idea that matters. From a young age, they would always listen to me and Nita because they realized that, hey, you know, our kids aren't as stupid as we think they are. You know, we should actually listen to them. That's really it. My next question was going to be how they did that. And it sounds like listening was a big part of it. I can also really relate to the, the six-year age gap, right? My sister and I have a seven-year age gap. I feel like I saw all of the immigrant struggles. And even when she was a kid, you know, her and I would share a room, but she was so young that she no longer remembers that. And she's kind of grown up in a bigger house and just a very different environment. I underestimated the impact of that until much later. But when I look at like our spending habits and such, it's like very different. 
coming back to this earlier period in your life where you almost had to like switch identities because of this event that happened in the U.S. As an undergrad, you studied political science and statistics. How much of that was driven by these earlier experiences? <laughs> My undergrad experience was interesting because I actually went to school wanting to learn more about economics. The only issue is what I enrolled into undergrad in 2009. And 2009, as, as you and your listeners know, was the U.S. and really the world coming out of this insane financial crisis. So theories that I was learning in, in the books did not match up with what central banks, including the Federal Reserve, were actively deploying in terms of monetary policy. Those things weren't matching. And so I started this endless journey that I'm sure every other student has gone through at one point in their educational career. I probably changed my major seven or eight times and finally landed on statistics because I thought, hey, you know, that's something that's going to pay my bills once I graduate. And I ended up finishing that pretty early into, into undergrad, but I was so unsatisfied. The only reason being is I'm just a really curious person. I really enjoy learning and listening from people. And I felt like I learned nothing. I'm sure I learned things, but if you really dig deeper into learning, I, I didn't learn much about the world. I didn't learn much about myself. I didn't feel like I grew the way I should, the way that was advertised to me for all the thousands of dollars that I was going to spend in college. And I remember going to my advisor and they said, well, it looks like you're really interested in the world, the way political systems work, the way governing institutions work and the evolution of government. You should really take a few political science courses. And I ended up finishing the entire major in a year. And I loved it. I absolutely was amazed by all these people who had such wacky ideas in these political science classes. And they were so passionate about something that seemed so boring from the outside. And it really sparked my interest in the way that part of the world that I had no idea about before worked. It seems like you kind of stumbled into it in a way. Is there a class that really stood out to you or something like a concept that really stood out to you that you think more people should know about? That's a wonderful question, Suraj, and not too many people ask me that. And really the one class that stood out the most was the last class I took for political science. It had nothing to do with American politics, which is the most ironic part. It was Russian politics. And it was evolution, obviously, you know, Russia, the Soviet Union as a whole has gone through an insane evolution. But it is funny how little Americans know about the Eastern Bloc and, you know, the Soviet Union and, and Russia as a whole, and really how diverse that system is. And so to your listeners, if you're interested in politics, I very much suggest diving a little deeper into Russian politics. I think American media has done a phenomenal job of painting Russia in such a bad light that it's turned off so many of our students. So I would definitely recommend um, learning about Russian politics. It's, it's hilarious that you say that because you're the second person to come on and comment on how Americans don't know too much about like world politics, right? And you're the second person, that same person had also referred to Russian politics as well. <laughs> so I might have to do some digging of my own. Full disclosure, I'm not a employee of the KGB or the, <laughs> the Russian government. <laughs> it's all good, y'all. I, I vetted him before the show. He's clear. <laughs> I'm also interested in this period of your life because it's not just in college that's tumultuous, right? Coming out of college, I know for me, especially because I had just left the pre-med path, I didn't really know where I was headed next. It's a very shaky period. And I think you came out with a bit of stability, but very quickly you dove into a more risky path. Can you tell me more about how you ended up moving towards entrepreneurship with Bob Cart? Absolutely. So just to give a little bit more context, in college, I never took a formal internship. I had one for about a week and ended up being one of those MLM schemes to paint houses. And uh, what I ended up doing every summer was either work on some technical skill that I didn't have prior or a business idea. So I've always had that bug to build something and be entrenched in some sort of scrappy environment. I started my first business as a freshman in college. I started Bubcart completely out of accident, which is the craziest thing. The story behind it was my mom, she had started this South Asian clothing and crafts business. She was a hustler. She was selling all these things out of her garage, out of her living room, out of fairs, door to door, straight up hustler. 
The only thing she couldn't figure out was how to sell these things online. And she knew she would have to, but that was just not in her area of expertise. And at that time, I was consulting. And as everyone knows, consultants fly around too much. So we're not really in one city for too long. And she'd asked me if I could sit with her and, and help her build out her e-commerce website. And I told her, look, I can build it for you, but I'd have to sit and, and maintain it. And I simply can't because I won't, I won't be here for that long. But I told her what I could do is when I'm on these flights, I can just open up my laptop, code something out for you. And maybe that solution can help you specifically sell online and make life easier for you. I got a phone call two weeks later, and she told me that she sold a few thousand dollars worth of goods on that. It, it didn't even have a name. So $2,000 worth of goods on an e-commerce platform that I built out specifically for my mama. And she was like, you know, you should really open this up to other people. There's a bunch of other businesses that have brilliant products, have a passion for what they're selling, but have no idea how to break their store onto the internet. I didn't think of it that way. I had no idea I was sitting on this business idea. And eventually I turned it into Bubcart, which I named after my dog, by the way, Bubbles. And um, this thing took off. I had no idea it would have, right? Um, my, my life quickly became 60 to 70 hours a week of consulting. I would come home into my hotel room and instead of doing the usual dinner and drinks with clients, I would just open up my other laptop and work on that for the rest of the night. Got to the point where it got really stressful doing both things and had to quit that lucrative job that I got straight out of college to go deeper into this business. And it wasn't easy, right? It wasn't easy. It took about two and a half to three years to scale it up and hire teams and expand throughout the States and eventually exiting. But I think the most beautiful part of all of this was the personal story of how I only built this tool to help my mom. I didn't build this to become rich or change the world in any way. I just did this to help my mom. I think that's amazing. As part of immigrant families, we think about how much our parents helped us, but it's like a, one of those rare moments where you really got to do something for your mom and it turned into this much larger thing. You exited that company after three years. I believe it got acquired. What were you feeling in that moment? Was it like relief that you, you were like, you know, exited? Was it maybe a little bit of loss because you felt like, you know, you just sold this business that you'd been putting so much time into? Most startup entrepreneurs don't refer to their businesses as businesses or startups. They refer to them as their babies. And so for me, I felt a huge sense of loss a loss of what do I do with my time? Do I have a purpose in life? Because you do devote so much attention to it, so much of your resources and attention the same way you would with a baby. And so for me, I felt lost for about three weeks until I figured out what I was going to do next. But the reason I wanted to exit was I also was getting burnt out along that process. I really quickly realized that Scaling an e-commerce platform is not the most ideal way I want to spend all these hours of my life. And so, yeah, it's just a, it was a huge sense of loss for me. Who is Rohit Gupta? And can you tell me like how you met him and what was his impact on you during that time? Rohit, I, I really hope you're going to listen to this. <laughs> Rohit Gupta, I met him through a friend. The friend who introduced us actually helped me through a pretty dark period of my life where I felt burnt out. That was pretty much how I embarked on this journey on wanting to exit Buckcart. And, you know, upon exiting, I, I went to my friend's house in LA and I saw this other dude there, you know, he had a beard, kind of, you know, tall dude, lanky looking. And we were just talking about Indian street food. We were talking about the future of psychedelics in terms of medication and how people would view it less of a recreational drug, but really a way to deal with things like anxiety and depression. And I was so interested in what this guy was all about. I had no idea that he was someone that ran a large financial institution. To me, he was just someone I wanted to talk to. And uh, shortly after we, we went down the street to a gas station to get some Indian food, which, by the way, in L.A., if you've never been to Frankie's, is, I mean, 
that there's the first time I had Frankie's, which is a popular Indian food. First time I had it at a gas station here in LA, very good. And he had given me the best piece of advice, which was don't wait too long to make your next step. You've got all the pieces figured out. You have all the confidence you need. You have the money, you have the expertise. Invest in future princes. Invest in future entrepreneurs with similar stories. And obviously make money in, in the way, but but really there's a common thread between entrepreneurs and you've identified it. Continue to do the same thing and just invest in those people. He's really, you know, he's turned into a a mentor, but more than that, a, a brother, close friend, someone that I can talk to for advice at any hour of the day. We've done a lot. Sure. We've done a lot of investments together in X number of dollars, but in terms of how he's helped me transition from being a startup entrepreneur into a investor of startups, I would say he is by far the most fundamental person who's given the most monumental advice. And I'm forever grateful for that. And so that, it sounds like, led to the genesis of Greywall, which is your investment firm. So finance and investment, when most people think about those two categories, let's say, they think of large institutions, right? Like Wells Fargo, these big banks. So is it intimidating being one of the, quote unquote, like smaller players in that space? Or do you feel like you're competing in a completely different industry? I feel right at home. And the reason for that is in college, I never had an internship, so I was never associated with a large firm. I was always used to scrappy environments. Even after college, my first job was with a two-person consulting firm that eventually grew. But again, it's not your typical story of you know getting this huge gig at a big firm. And for me, starting Graywall, which is essentially a family office, I, I don't feel intimidated at all. And in, in fact, I love engaging with these other firms and realizing that to really compete with them, I have to think like a startup entrepreneur. I have to drop my ego and be scrappy and feel okay to cold email people and learn from them or cold call people or join clubhouses and ask what I think are stupid questions, but really aren't. Things that when you're part of a bigger firm, you tend not to do because you think that that logo on your business card means much more than anything else. I love it. I feel right at home. And I think that's a huge advantage. Have there been any sort of mistakes that you've made along the way that stand out to you? I think anyone that starts a new venture, whether it's a nonprofit or a business or a financial institution, will make some mistakes here or there. And I would say, sure, there were a handful of very small mistakes in terms of, you know, maybe I shouldn't have structured a deal a certain way, or maybe I shouldn't have looped this person into a certain deal. But uh, I would say for the most part, I've stayed away from by far the biggest mistake that you could make in investing in businesses, and that is being able to identify the right partners and the right entrepreneurs to invest in. And that's not saying that every business I invest in has done phenomenal. No. What I'm saying is, is this someone I want to talk to at 2 a.m. on a Sunday? Is this someone I can invite over and let them crash in my apartment for a month at a time? Because when you're investing in a business, you're investing in someone's idea and you're probably going to stick with them for 10 plus years. And so you're not investing in a business. You're almost marrying the team and the founders. Luckily, I think I've done a good job so far with identifying the right people to work with. Can you talk a little bit about how you evaluate these opportunities? Because your firm looks at AI, data security. These things are still very much developing technologies. I think with things like GPT-3, like you're seeing a lot more of the AI stuff coming to the forefront, but it, it's still very much developing. So do you operate by a certain thesis? That's a wonderful question. I'm so glad we're going into this. So the firm's focus for the VC side is very simple. The core thesis is there's no fourth industrial revolution without a future of secure intelligence. What that means is there's no breakthroughs in agriculture, in space, in autonomous vehicles, anything of that sort without 
secure AI, without data platforms and networks that are more expansive than anything we've seen today, and without cybersecurity securing both AI and this data networks in ways that we've never seen before. If you really think about it, the biggest consumer device that we've seen to date that's been launched are mobile cell phones. But that market is about to be turned upside down because we have these devices, smart, you know, we have these Amazon X, uh, Alexas and uh, smart cars and smart lights, you know, in your cities. There's about to be a trillion new devices in the span of five years, and we haven't figured out a way to properly secure those devices. So for me, I, my funds investment pieces make sure that whatever our future is going to build on top of needs to be a very secure foundation. In terms of how I figure out what to invest in and what not to invest in, the reason that I focus on those three segments is because I have a strong technical expertise in those areas. And unfortunately, that also means I don't get to look at the future Ubers and Facebooks and Snapchats and Instagrams, things that I could tell my mom that I'm investing in and she would understand. But that's okay. Those companies all have to be powered by data networks that I would be more than happy to invest in. The first thing that I do is identify the founding team as a founding team that can weather multiple storms that have some sort of strong conviction that can't be rocked, and obviously an insane level of domain expertise. Those are really the core components for any early stage investment. Then there's so many nuances here and there about you know product market fit and so on and so forth. But again, it really, at the early stage, the thing that you're investing in is the founding team. It's not how big the potential market is. It's not that current product, because more likely than not, both of those factors are going to change. Mm, that makes sense, especially with like the regulatory environment around AI and the distribution of data. We're definitely going to see a lot of changes. Exactly. I'm very glad you brought up moms because my mom had actually come to me a while ago and told me to take her money and invest it because, you know, I've been investing some of my own. I'm doing decent enough. And I refused <laughs> because I was too nervous about losing her money, right? I think... If I lose my money, that's on me. But if I lose someone else's money, it's just there's a sense of guilt. So I'm curious how you build the trust in people to a, give you their money. And then how do you personally handle the pressure of now you're working with other people's money, right? The losses aren't necessarily your own. Serge, it's another great question that you asked. The first thing I do is I align myself with the investors on every deal that I do. I ensure them that my money, and I show them that my money is in that same deal. So to give you an example, if I do a million dollar investment, I make sure that 10 to 20% of that million dollars is literally coming from my bank account. And then I go out and I syndicate the rest. And that does two things. One, it shows them that my skin is literally in the game. B, it shows them that this person is going above and beyond what the usual larger financial institutions, and I'm not going to name names, but the ones that you had spoken about prior, don't really do. I'm not in the business of selling investments or brokering deals. I'm in the business of planting seeds for relationships that will be fruitful 5, 10, 15, 20 years down the line. If you think about it, you know, you're planting a seed, you're putting it under soil, you're packing it under dirt and watering it. And that water that I'm adding is a level of trust that I can show in every interaction that I do, whether it's by making myself available for phone calls and emails, or allowing them to stay over and me just going above and beyond in the level of transparency that you just normally don't get from other financial institutions. Those are the small things that I do to ensure trust, but you're absolutely right. The second I lose that trust is the second I lose that segment of my business. And, and I can't. I, I absolutely can't do that. Do you feel pressure from the fact that you're working with other people's money? It seems like you're very relationship focused, right? So I imagine that a person like that would be even more impacted by any potential losses. I tell everyone that there should be an expectation to lose money, especially in these types of investments. 
you're not investing in a U.S. 30-year bond, which is supposed to be one of the safer assets. You're literally investing in the riskiest asset class in the States, newest startups. But what I do tell them is we have a very strong investment thesis. We have a phenomenal track record. We have deal flow that's unparalleled with most other family offices because we are plugged in with top-tier institutions and angel investors and VC networks around the country, but specifically in California. So I explain all of that, but I tell them that, again, if there's anything that you need, if there's anything that I can do in terms of calling me, emailing me, and just making myself available to you, please use that. I tell them that you're not just investing in a company, you're investing in this long-term business relationship with me. And for me, I know, again, the only way I can expand that is with trust. And no, I don't really feel pressure, to be honest, Suraj. I don't feel pressure because I maintain integrity in everything that I do. I maintain an honest and open and, and transparent relationship. And uh, I, I feel no pressure, honestly. So I want to pivot a little bit on that concept of integrity. Prince, I know you've just got so much free time starting your own investment firm. <laughs> so you decided to also do some impact work. You founded Asana Voices. So can you tell me what that is? Asana Voices stands for the Alliance of South Asians in North America. And it's an organization that's created a platform to educate and engage South Asians in North America on economic, political, and social issues. Unfortunately, the founding story isn't one of rainbows and roses. It's one that started shortly after the brutal murder of George Floyd in 2020. The four co-founders, so we're, we're four friends, we were part of this larger South Asian organization that prided itself over discussing social justice issues at least once a year. And when it came to one of the most monumental movements in the decade, and really, I would say probably my lifetime so far, they were silent. And that's something that didn't sit well with any of us because things that this organization stood for in the past was just no longer congruent with something that was happening in real time. When we had asked to set up some sort of platform uh, to allow members of our community to engage with each other and learn from each other in terms of what's going on, in terms of race relations, how should we in our community discuss this within our families to make sure that we aren't actually part of the problem. That was brushed off as a as something that was too political to deal with. And that pissed us off, to be honest, to the point where for 48 hours and numerous FaceTimes amongst the four of us, we decided, you know, we can't just do one Zoom town hall and be done with it. Because if we really dig into it, the South Asian community in the U.S. doesn't do enough in terms of looking at all these other various issues that not only Americans deal with here, but South Asians deal with back at home. So we had quickly, you know, within 48 hours, we ended up launching this, this organization and it really picked up steam. We had no idea that others would resonate with our mission and with all the work that we've done. Quickly for your audience, if they don't know what Asana Voices is, fundamentally, we have one North Star and that is, can we use this platform that we're using to educate South Asians in North America to eventually create the infrastructure to drive economic, political, and social change for South Asians in North America. We raise awareness through two main ways. One is creating content, which you can find on our Instagram. And we partner with a lot of subject matter experts to have live events. So whether these are people who are at city governments, state governments, if they're at the UN, the second thing we've done is we've built out a nationwide network of South Asian organizations. And the reason we want to do this was we wanted to bridge the gap between the South Asian community and the government that serves us. And the only way we can do that is if we unify the voices of South Asian across the board. I understand we're not one big monolith. I know, Suraj, between you and me, 
there's quite so many differences that we can get into, but I bet you we have much more in common than we think, regardless of our histories and our parents' histories and their grandparents' histories. We have much more in common than we think. And the only way South Asians and Americans can make a difference is if we unify our voices and we get behind issues that really matter to us and people that we should really start to care about. And the only way we can do that again is if we have some sort of collective network, which is what we're building. And the third thing, which is what we're doing now, is we're putting both that awareness uh, work that we're doing and this network, and we're putting all of that weight behind this bill that has been stalled in three separate sessions of Congress. It was introduced by Pramila Jayapal of Washington State. It's called the South Asian Heart Health Research and Awareness Act. And it's been stalled three different times, and it makes no sense. South Asians, there's millions of us here in the U.S. We're one of the most affluent groups. And for some reason, Congress thought it wasn't important enough to pass. I don't know if you know this, but South Asians account for 50% of global CHD deaths. But we're not 50% of the global population. There's something we need to dig deeper into in terms of why aren't we aware as a community? And why isn't our government that's supposed to serve us doing more about helping us figure this out? So our goal is to really line all these things up. And if we're able to help pass this bill, it means that our thesis of whatever we've founded us on a voice to do really works. And once we know it works, we can replicate it over and over and over again. There's a lot of places that I could go from there. But one place that I want to start is you were born in L.A., I grew up here, right, I would call Toronto or the Midwest U.S. home, depending on the day. I totally understand wanting to work on, for example, the heart health bill that affects both of us as South Asian Americans. You've held a panel recently on the Rohingya refugee crisis. On Instagram, you talk about like censorship in Nepal, militancy in Pakistan. So I wanted your thoughts on Yes, we're both South Asian descended, but we were raised here and we grew up in this culture. So is there any reason why you believe we should be paying particular attention to South Asia versus, let's say, local politics or just global politics, right? And that's not to say that they're mutually exclusive, but why the focus on South Asia? We can't, we can't make a difference in a country that is literally a quilt of various cultures and heritages and histories without understanding our own histories and our own heritage and our own issues that we deal with back home, not necessarily where you and I were born, but maybe our parents and our grandparents were born, because so much of our identity is truly linked back to that pocket of the world. And in no way are we saying that things in the U.S. or Canada or South Asia matters more than anything in sub-Saharan Africa or Latin America or Eastern Europe. But what we are saying is if we want to boil it down for a specific group of people in North America, the best way to do it is to find that intersection of South Asians and North Americans and find issues that matter in that, you know, if there's a Venn diagram that mattered to both South Asians and North Americans. I would say with that context and with that understanding, it's important to be aware of issues, but I also know that it's important to realize that we can't help every single person on this planet. We can't help every single person in South Asia. But if we don't get the conversation started, no one's going to be able to help those people out, period. So the conversation needs to start somewhere, and we want to make sure that we're doing our part to ensure that conversation doesn't die out. Yeah, I love that. And it also stands out to me because I think language is a great example here, right? I speak Telugu, so it makes more sense for me to go and help someone in Andhra Pradesh, or I'm in a unique position where I might be able to help someone versus like a white American going there, right? Or I might not be able to help someone in Africa as well as someone that speaks Swahili or French or some African language. But another thing that I'm curious about is 
and you alluded to a, a little bit earlier here, and you've mentioned in the past that we as South Asians were very tied into the model minority myth. And for that reason, many of us have like kept our head down and focused on accruing wealth as opposed to getting involved in these social justice issues. What have you learned from other organizations that are focusing on these issues that you're applying here? Because there have already been black organizations and Hispanic organizations that are mobile on these issues. Have you been able to draw lessons from them? You're right. And I want to give credit to various South Asian organizations that have helped us on voices along the way and organizations that have nothing to do with a specific group of people, heritage, culture, etc. The community to drive change is phenomenal here. And I'm very grateful for that. But the biggest lesson that I've learned in my short period so far leading Sana Voices is that we can't drive change, lasting change, through antagonizing language. And what I mean by that is we can't keep pointing fingers and yelling at people and forcing people or canceling people and expecting that that's how we're going to build a foundation where us and our kids and our grandkids, et cetera, et cetera, are going to be able to thrive as humans. What I've learned is that change needs to come from an introspective lens where we look within ourselves and really embark on a very spiritual journey and understanding why we believe the things we do, why we say the things we say, and we approach dialogue from that manner. That's the easiest way to reach across the aisle and talk to someone who may or may not believe in the things you do. But when you are both able to look deep down in yourselves, you realize again, Suraj, that we have much more in common than we think. Ultimately, we want to make a better world for those that are coming after us. And that, I think, only comes from that introspective lens that I was talking about. Mm. So staying in that domain of learnings, Asana Voices is an organization, but it's definitely not a business, at least at this moment. So how much of what you learned while building Bubcart and Graywall has applied here? A lot. And if you ask my extremely talented team, you, you'll hear the same. So we are a nonprofit. We don't run Asana Voices as a top-down model. We don't run this as one person's right and everybody has to listen to that person. We run it, quite frankly, as a startup. We're very long-term oriented. We don't care about short-term results. Things that you're seeing now have been thought about months ago, and things that you'll see in 2022 and 2023 are a result of work that we're putting in today. You know, in terms of can I draw parallels between Bubcart, Graywall, and this? Absolutely. In terms of trusting my team, in terms of delegating tasks, in terms of moving quickly and be ready to fail and not dwell on failures, but be absolutely ready to learn from those. And don't, at any point, don't let your ego get too high because all every single one of us on our team has been humbled in one way or another. We absolutely run this as a startup. And regardless of how big we get, I think that's the right mentality to keep because if you think about it, Startups are, by their very nature, an enabler of change. If it's a startup that's worthwhile investing in. And it's no different for Asana Voices. Asana Voices is aiming to become an enabler of change. And the parallels in both in terms of the organizational structure has to be operating in a very lean way. So Prince, you're basically running two startups at this point between Graywall and Asana Voices. You talked about burnout earlier. I know one of the things that you've started doing these days is that you set aside at least one day a week to just not do work and to kind of rejuvenate. What do you do during those days? I unplug. I don't have my phone near me, my laptop. The best thing for me is getting outside. I live in downtown LA and obviously in the middle of COVID, there's not much happening here. But luckily, being in one of the best places on earth, I get to go to the beach whenever I want. I get to go to the mountains whenever I want or the desert. And so I really try to spend as much time in nature as possible. 
And I do set aside one day to do that. Yeah, you have lots of Instagram pics out in nature. <laughs> I'm, I'm jealous, actually. Although I'm in North Carolina now, so it's not too bad. North Carolina is a beautiful place. With burnout, are there any other lessons that you've taken that you want to pass on? Absolutely. And I'll, I'll, uh, I'll share it through a story that I'm sure um, many others, especially in this, this day and age where I've noticed this hustler culture or this, this culture of wanting to work, work, work yourself and work outwork everyone else almost means more than the output itself. And so I'll, I'll share in the story. Near the tail end of my time with Bubcart, my physical health deteriorated to a point where I couldn't work for a month and I was in and out of a hospital for at least 30 to 40 days. Surge, I really thought I was going to die. And whenever you're faced, whenever humans or really any sentient creatures are faced with that understanding of mortality, they change as much as possible and they really start reflecting on how they've spent their days and hours and minutes. You know, I, I really thought of how I spent every second, every minute, every day of my life. And I realized that I wasn't really living for myself. I was living for people around me. I was living for this organization that I built out that I wasn't actually that passionate about if I could spend a month away from it. And so I really started looking at how I should be living for myself. And again, this is a backdrop of me thinking, you know, going to sleep might be the last time I'd be going to sleep. And I told myself, let's look at my calendar for the next day. Let's see what I have scheduled where I focus on my physical well-being, my mental well-being, and my emotional well-being. I saw nothing. Had nothing to do with me. And I'm sure that there's a lot of other people that are listening to this that might associate themselves with that. And I really quickly realized that that needs to change. And so what I did is most people, again, look at their calendars as a to-do list. And Serge, you and I know that your to-do list, the most important things are usually up top. And so what I said was I'm going to block some time in the morning to focus on eating well, exercising, meditating, and reading before I get into any sort of work. And I've done that ever since. And that habit alone, which I call feeding my mind, body, and soul, has quite frankly saved my life. And it's not only saved my life, but it has turned me around in terms of one of the darkest days where I thought there was no light at the end of the tunnel to now where I can fully immerse myself in the present moment where I only focus on what I can handle from my five senses and not worry about things that I can't control or worry about the stupid things I did in the second grade that are still embarrassing me. I only focus on what's in front of me now. And uh, I'm very happy that I learned this by the age 29. And I hope that for every listener that you have, I hope that they also reflect on how they spend their time and they do add in whatever positive experience they want to add, but make sure you're living your life at least a little bit for yourself too. Thank you for sharing that story. I think you learned it by going through kind of a shock, but hopefully when people hear the story, it kind of gives them pause and makes them reflect. And like you said, look at their calendar and, and think about how to integrate those things. You've done a lot by 29. I think the journey you've had, many people would look at and see unique elements. For example, going through the experience of 9-11 as a Pakistani. You've also done things a lot of people aspire to by exiting a company, despite maybe the turbulent personal journey that you had in that process. What are you most proud of? Suraj, you've built a platform for South Asians, so I'm sure you get a lot of messages because you uplift a lot of untold stories. And I'm sure you get a lot of messages from strangers thanking you for what you've done as a platform. For me, it has nothing to do with the money. It has nothing to do with Bubcart or Graywall, which are both great and phenomenal. And I'm sure Graywall is going to turn into a fantastic, you know, large institution, larger than it is now. But the thing I'm most proud of 
is is reconnecting with my heritage around the same time I had built a sound of voices and I've shared so many stories and shared so many issues that so many of us have never heard of. And so many of us are starting to be compassionate about. And specifically the thing I'm most proud of is again, my parents are refugees into the U S so refugees, the stories of refugees have always held a, a very important place in my heart. So specifically when I was able to do, or when my team was able to partner with the Bengalis of New York on uplifting the stories of Rohingya refugees from Myanmar into Bangladesh. And we were able to bring in high profile guests, you know, whether they're from the UN or professors, you name it, that sent shivers down my spine because Asana Voices is only a few months old. And the fact that people in America and around the world see some sort of value in what we have created and the fact that they're so interested in wanting to become part of this broader movement has nothing to do with me and has much more to do with people around the world. That's the thing I'm the most proud of. Amazing. So Prince, I just want to echo what you were saying earlier. When I started this podcast, like you said, people have been sending me messages, but your team was one of the first to connect with me. And you and I got to sit down on a call very early on. I think this conversation, at least on the podcast, has been a long time coming. With that, I just want to end by asking where people can find you, can find Greywall, can find Asana Voices, kind of follow along with the stuff that you're doing. Absolutely. I would say if you're interested in learning about what Greywall invests in, and if you're interested in having Greywall look at your project or your startup for finance or for advisory, go to graywall.fund. It's a very simple website. You're not going to learn much, but there is an email address there that you can reach out to. Um, I love chatting with strangers. And Suraj, I mean, you and I were strangers, and I count you as a good friend now, and I'm very excited to actually meet you in person once all this COVID is over. In terms of Asana Voices, if you're interested in learning more about the various economic, political, and social issues that South Asian North Americans should be interested in learning about, you can follow us at Asana Voices on Instagram. And that's really it. I've been really excited to bring you on. So thank you for taking the time and glad we got to sit down and chat finally. Thanks for having me, Stuart. This has been a great time. I really enjoy your show. Hey, it's Suraj. Just wanted to take a moment to say thank you for reaching the end of the episode. Hope you enjoyed our conversation today. If you did, please take a moment to share with a friend or leave us a review on your favorite podcast app. If you want to follow along in between episodes, follow us on Instagram at BPWK Podcast. See you on the next episode. Stay well.